Hello and welcome to the F word. And the F word, of course, stands for front end, the wonderful world of web development. I'm Bruce Lawson, coming to you from Birmingham in the United Kingdom. I'm Vadim Makiev, coming from Saint Petersburg, Russia. How are you, Vadim? Have you been? Uh, nothing's going on, just like for with everyone. But yeah, summer's summer's coming, and uh, it's pretty pretty hot in Saint Petersburg. Plus thirty yesterday. Whoa, we had a, like a really, really warm uh, May, and then it's been thundering and lightning for most of June. But heat waves are coming, they say. I have to say, though, uh, it's interesting. We're going to talk about browser compatibility, etc. Here, I've been working with a client and uh, doing some accessibility remediation on their website and. Browser incompatibility has been so bad. I was ready to give up the world of web development and just make a new career selling uh, John Lennon memorabilia on eBay. Imagine all the PayPal. I wasn't expecting this. <laughs> this one. <laughs> Clearly. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Let's go to the first topic. All of a sudden, you're gonna talk about Apple. Well, you probably know everybody that I really love Apple.、Uh, although I complain about them, I do run a MacBook Air as my main workhorse machine, and I've got a MacBook Pro for my music software. So I'm not a hater, but I do sometimes worry about Apple's commitment to the open web. And this week, the European Union have announced they're launching an antitrust investigation into Apple. Primarily the App Store, so not necessarily completely related to the web. But I've got a feeling that the fallout will impact us web web developers. So basically, the EU are opening an investigation because Apple takes a thirty percent commission on any in-app sales, and Spotify, which is of course a European company, have complained. Of course, Spotify compete against Apple Music, so. Spotify in the App Store, if they upsell anything, Apple's taking thirty percent. But of course, Apple, if it is taking thirty percent from Apple Music, that's merely、uh, a transfer on paper of funds within one company. They're also pointing out that because Apple and the, the phrase is an ugly phrase, but it, it disintermediates an organization from their audience. So. You get this weird situation in that Apple actually has or loads of user stats about Spotify's customers that Spotify doesn't have access to, and Apple has access to, and yet is competing in the same marketplace. So I think it's going to be a really interesting question because it seems to me. Just pretty damn obvious that Apple stranglehold on who can go into the App Store, what can go into the App Store, what you're allowed to run, are you allowed to run a browser engine or not, is anti-competitive, aka monopolistic, and I'm hopeful that the EU will tell them to stop doing this. And I know the EU is not the world, but the EU. Even without the United Kingdom, is a vast and important and lucrative market, and I have a feeling that this could have ramifications both back in the U.S. 
and uh, about Apple's approach to the open web in general? For me, it sounds way too complicated to understand it, probably to see the whole picture, because probably law is a bit different here in Russia. And uh, also, well, it's quite different there in US, because I don't think they, they have a chance uh, filing suit like this uh, in US, I mean, Spotify. Mm-hmm. It's probably something about e- European Union that's stand out like they have different kind of view on on this problem on the competitive market they support companies uh, like spotify the smaller ones well i think uh, without wishing to get all um brexity on you one of the great things about the eu is that it, it has always tried to make a level playing field for both you know the migration of people and the ability of companies to do business with each other. And Spotify have not sued Apple um, in the same way as in the olden days, Opera did not sue Microsoft. Spotify, amongst other companies who are based in the EU, have asked the EU to investigate because the EU has a vested interest in making sure that, not a vested interest, the EU its whole purpose is to ensure equality of competition and equality of access to markets. And if an EU company asks it to investigate a company that's external to the EU, it will still do so because it's restricting that EU company's ability to to, uh, compete in our own market. And they can really do stuff. I mean, they could say all the Apple stores have to close, or they could say we are imposing a punitive tax on any sales of Apple products in the EU if Apple don't change this business model. And yeah, the EU is 500 million people in a world of 7 billion, but proportionally, citizens of the EU have a a very large discretionary income, which is why, of course, comparatively expensive Apple products sell very well here. So if the EU find that Apple have been behaving anti-competitively, it could very much change the rules of the game, and in my opinion, for the better. I mean, you're you're sounding a bit like a lawyer now. The difference between some companies suing another company or some company reporting to authorities that other companies are doing something wrong is a very small difference. So it's similar in, in, in my world. I'm not a lawyer, but I used to be a front-end lead for a massive legal organization in the UK. It's not a trial, and there's no testifying. I don't know the exact details of Spotify's involvement, but I can remember just before I joined Opera in 2008, there was uh, a huge tech press hoo-ha suggesting that Opera had sued Microsoft. Opera never sued Microsoft. Opera said to the EU Commission, we believe that Microsoft is behaving anti-competitively. Could you please look? And the EU Commission did look and decided that Microsoft were behaving anti-competitively by bundling IE in Windows and not giving people a real choice. If you knew what a browser was and you knew where you to download one, you could do, but they didn't make that clear to the vast majority of consumers. You know, we all remember the days when a blue E was synonymous with the internet. And 
Opera, not complained, Opera said to the EU, please investigate this. And of course, everybody said, oh, Opera sued Microsoft. We didn't. And it's very notable that the day after the EU launched this investigation, Mozilla and Google also asked to be able to uh, contribute their thoughts. Because basically, we, we'd all had enough of Microsoft's behavior, but Opera was the only browser based in the EU and therefore was the only browser eligible to uh, make a complaint to the EU Commission. All right, that's that's why Spotify. <laughs> yes, um, but it's by no means the only organization that is hurt by Apple's behavior here. I, I don't know if you've been following, but there's a new email system called Hey. Yeah, just uh, yesterday I got the invite, so I haven't tried it yet. But yeah, I know, I know the company behind this this service, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, I know their products. So yeah, it's it's something something great, something web based, supported by native applications. Yeah, I'm just enjoying the fact that you've mentioned that you got an invite and I didn't. So uh, listeners, Vadim is the coolest person that you know the coolest person i know and you got an invite and you haven't tried it yet my god you're hard to get (laughs) (laughs) well i'm yeah it's i'm not that interested (laughs) Uh, (laughs) yeah but but um DHH, who is the CEO of Hay and uh, who people might know because he came from 37 Signals, so things like Basecamp, for example. Apple refused to allow Hay into the App Store, allegedly because Hay were not giving them enough uh, opportunity to take 30% cut from the uh, in-app sales. So... Yeah, Spotify may be leading the charge because they're an EU company, but I would be willing to bet all the exclusive invitations that I never receive that uh, there will be uh, more and more organizations joining in on this complaint. And if the EU finds that Apple are behaving anti-competitively and for the life of me, I think I've never seen such an obvious case then apple will have to change its behavior at least in the eu <sighs> you know when you're when when you look at it from person to person perspective apple created the, the ecosystem mm-hmm. and they spent a lot of money uh, supporting this platform and creating this platform mm-hmm. and uh, it seems to me that they have a right to to create their own rules inside of this platform, like by paying 30% tax on your purchases inside of your app, you're supporting the, the distribution and, and the development of, of our platform. And it sounds fair, but if you look at it from the, from the perspective that uh, a lot of people using uh, iOS and Apple products, and they're probably dominating in some markets, not sure about Europe, uh, but uh, they're definitely in US. And uh, from this perspective, yeah, it sounds like they're owning a big part of the market and that's that's why they need to be regulated. So there, there would be a competition going on. So it's 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 a bit complicated because uh, we are we are as regular per- people they we, we look at this uh, from person to person perspective, but it's different. Uh, that's why it's 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 really important to change the optics uh, of how you look at it. It is. I mean, imagine if in 1906 Henry Ford had offered to build roads in Russia 
and subsequently anybody who was driving a non-Ford car was charged 30% to drive on those roads. That would be ridiculous because at some point, these things become not just a business, but an actual public utility. And I think much as I dislike apps as opposed to open websites, it is so pervasive and important to people's lives that it can't be purely in the hands of one company. And I don't hate Apple. I dislike the way they do business. I think many of their products are absolutely magical. I mentioned before, you know, I love my MacBook Air. Uh, I, I can't imagine going to a Microsoft or, or an Ubuntu machine now. But so many people depend for business. So many companies exist only as apps or the web that it ceases to be a case of one company generating legitimate profits and becomes a case of price gouging. It's like it's like medication. If you invent a drug that cures, I don't know, COVID, for how long should you be allowed to be the only player in the market charging whatever you want? And when does it become legitimate for other organizations to say, this thing is so important that it has to be opened up? It's, it's not about punishing or shutting a business down. It's about regulating it to make sure that everybody's able to play fairly. And, and the US has, tra- has formed for this as well. I mean, Bell who invented the telephone, and they, they were broken up by the US government um, into AT&T and Bell Labs precisely because they were exercising too much control on the market. And actually, now I'm thinking about it, that's quite a good parallel because that, that's the tech world as well. But they, they made a brilliant product. They grew and grew, and they took over the market so much that nobody was able to compete. And when nobody can, can compete, nothing gets better. We saw that in the IE6 days. And th- this nonsense is happening in the, in the native and the application world on native platforms like iOS, Android, and yeah, Windows, Mac OS. But is there anything similar happening on the web? Chromium taking the, the most of the market as a browser engine? Not really. It's 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 different. It's they're they're not charging thirty percent of every e-commerce going through their browser. So well, that that would be the perfect analogy. Actually, it's like you you know you, you ship loads of Chromium browsers, and any e-commerce transaction that goes through, you charge thirty percent, and you say to people, "Well, okay, then we will just won't tell people who try to navigate to your URL in one of our browsers, we'll four oh four it." You know, yes, yes, that gives you a uh, inverted commas air quotes choice, but actually, it's no choice at all. I, I do think that Google, not Chromium, but Chrome. They're pushing Chrome from major Google properties like YouTube and uh, Google Search, and they're making sure that every Google web property works perfectly in Chrome while forgetting 
about Firefox, which I know is your default browser as it is mine. They're not lo- launching their services like cross-browser. They, they launch it and test it from Chromium first and then yeah. the others. Yeah. And, and to me, that feels a similar distortion of the market. And I'm aware now, listeners, that I sound like uh, the world's most Thatcherite person. I'm not. I'm a lefty. But I do believe that markets work well when companies can compete, but they have to be regulated by the government. And it's not Apple's fault either. I mean, the laws of economics dictate that any company tends toward monopoly. Every company rejoices in increasing its market share, and thus every company aspires to 100% of the market. That, that, that is, you, you can't blame a company doing for what companies do. It's like trying to blame uh, a snake for biting things. Snakes bite things. Companies gobble up competitors and take over the market. But that's why we need people like the EU Commission to stand between monopolistic companies and the rights of consumers and, more importantly, the wider ecosystem. Let's go back to web technologies. You know, in Russia, we have a word. I tried to translate it to English, and um, it sounds farmashlop uh, in Russian, which is something like form slapper, like to slap things together, like quickly and dirty. Mm-hmm. Basically, you're calling the farmashlop uh, a person who would who would do some simple task using HTML forms and uh, nothing, nothing too fancy. Of course, this uh, farmashlop or form slapper is a bit offensive because we do uh, so much more than just uh, creating simple forms on web. But still, it's it's a funny name, um, and I'm still <laughs> I'm still laughing when I'm uh, hearing it. And uh, there's a nice article uh, about forms. Well, more than that, there's a, there's a new uh, website called Fun with Forms. It's the website created by Michel Charnal or Michael or. Mikael, I don't know, uh, not sure. Mickey, Mickey, yeah. And uh, it's uh, there's only one article on it uh, called uh, the form attribute, and uh, Michelle it reminds us that there is a form attribute, not just a uh, form uh, tag. So basically, to send some data from a web page to the server. Not via JavaScript, but via native input tags. You you would need to create tag form, add some action attribute with an actual URL that will be used to send this data, and then submit it in some way by uh, providing uh, input type submit or button type submit, or just by pressing enter key in a- any any input field, for example. This would work without JavaScript and without any additional code, which is wonderful because it's perfectly available to any user on any platform in any browser, especially when, it's, when this form is logging uh, form or search form if you're like search engine or catalog or something like this. So please do like this uh, instead of uh, waiting for your JavaScript to load to enable some input to, to become a form like fake one. But there is a, uh, apparently there is a form attribute that would allow you to put some button outside of this form, not just inside. 
because when something is inside form, something like button or input type submit inside of form, you can submit it without JavaScript. But if you have something outside of form, personally, I would use JavaScript to, to find this form and um, uh, emit this submit uh, event. But uh, after reading this article, I realized that there is a form attribute. So basically, you can target any input or button elements um, to submit any form you want. Why would you need this, you might ask? Well, sometimes you need to put elements outside of form element. For example, if you have uh, some grid or flex going on, sometimes you want to put tags in uh, unusual places because things happening inside of this uh, this uh, grid or flex context. So sometimes it's necessary, sometimes it's easier much easier to do. So you don't have to do this via JavaScript. You can use this form form attribute. And sometimes you want to submit some uh, small parts of the form. For example, if you have some uh, options on your uh, or preferences on your website and every part of this uh, thing have uh, its own um, save button, for example. So you can you can create the whole form or put it somewhere outside of this thing. Basically, you can create a form with just uh, inputs, uh, so they would be uh, serialized and collected by this form. But you can put uh, all the buttons you need outside of this form. Sometimes you even have like form without any data. There's a, there's a good example in the uh, Mikhail's article, something like like or retweet buttons uh, on Twitter. You're not actually sending any data like you would do when you input something, but you can still do this via forms because it would work without JavaScript. So in this case, you can put forms somewhere in one place and buttons in, in the other, and you can you can link them together via form attribute. All of a sudden, new attribute in my dictionary. What about you, Bruce? Uh, have you heard about this attribute before? I'll be honest, Vadim, although I'm not the kind of person who gets invited to uh, special betas of cool things, I had actually heard of this. I knew about this, and I've actually used it in real life. Well, I heard about form action attribute, meaning that you can use different action mm -hmm. on, on a button you press to submit a form to some, some other location, for example. But I didn't know that you can actually connect a button outside of form uh, via form attribute. It reminds me uh, how label element works. You can connect input and label uh, via for attribute mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. ID. They will be connected via the common name. But you can also nest input type text or input type checkbox they will be connected automatically yeah. by nesting. So in form case, every button is connected to form via nesting, but you can take it out and connect it via form attribute. It would be good to have not form, but for attribute for that. But mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, it's a different case. What you shouldn't do is nest the input inside the label. Why? <clears throat> this confused me as well, because I've always done this on the grounds that if you're using for equals something ID and people are copying and pasting it, you know, the next developer afterwards, they might not change the ID or they might change the ID in two places on the label and the form, on the label and the input. Yeah, they, they need to be unique, yeah. But apparently with some assistive technologies, Dragon, which is uh, a voice browser, it just doesn't see an input if it's nested inside a label. So it's one of those things where sadly the HTML is perfectly valid and fine, but 
some crappy assistive technology that lots of people rely upon doesn't understand it. Yeah, it's just we have cross-browser problems in actual browsers, but we also have cross-screen reader problems. And this is, yeah, I haven't seen any can I use database for screen readers, but I would love to, I would love to. So if you if you know one, please, uh, our listeners or you, Bruce, please send it our way. Listeners, please do send it our way. Because uh, there's HTML5Accessibility.com, which Steve Faulkner of the Passiello Group maintains. And he looks at HTML5 uh, elements and attributes to work at how well they work in different screen readers. I always have a philosophical worry about this because... I personally, I think, you know, like accessibility is a two-way street. As, as a developer, I should make sure that the stuff I'm writing is valid, accessible. But if you come to my website with IE5 and, you know, JAWS 2, and you can't use my website, that is kind of your fault. You know, I, I, I shouldn't be held responsible for you using apocalyptically out-of-date tech. I mean, yeah, if you're using i11, my website should be accessible to you. But if you're using something absolutely creaky and shit, should my website accommodate you? I don't know. I Personally, I think not. But that, and that's because I'm a lazy person and I prefer dealing with modern browsers that are evergreen and i11, maybe i10 at a pinch. But Whatevs. In in my case, uh, the browser support at least uh, consists of two parts. First part is uh, basically stats. You collect mm-hmm. statistics on your existing website or on pro- on your previous projects or on competitors' websites. Sometimes they publish statistics. Sometimes you can yeah you can probably guess what's what's going on or you can just collect the statistic for for the market you're targeting. That's the first part. The second part is when, when you're at some responsibility to your um, browser list. Basically, you're adding support for screen readers, some LTS versions, or some popular devices that are still, you can see it, people use it uh, on the streets or some in, sometimes in metro, sometimes, uh, uh, sometimes your grandmother uses some old iPad which does not support IE uh, ECMAScript. So every code with a Latin constant will just break and will show your grandmother a blank page. Yeah, you can take some responsibility and uh, extend your uh, browser support list based on that. So st- statistics and some responsibility. I think that's, that's, that's the perfect combo. But then that's the thing. There are no stats, so there's no can I use for assistive technologies. And there are assistive technologies that I didn't know existed. It didn't occur to me that this Dragon voice browser would not even recognize a label that had an input nested inside it, because that obviously seems the, the best way to go. But back to the form attribute. It's one of the very few things in HTML that is that both an element name and an attribute name. The only one, the only one I can think of is site because you there's a site element and there's a site attribute on block quote, but I can't think of many others. Well, there's a IMG tag and IMG value for the role attribute. <laughs> That's a value, not an attribute. Yeah, well done. Actually, I hadn't thought of that. Yeah. 
<laughs> title attribute and title tag. You win. You, you you win, Vadim. This is why you get invites to call services and I don't. <laughs> no, I just recently gave, gave a talk. Well, recently, a few months ago, I gave a talk called uh, HTML, the good parts. So I just I just read the whole spec through. <laughs> what are the good parts? For me, it's the it's the it's just the the pointy brackets. All the rest of the stuff is shit. I have a I have a tendency to make uh, funny funny titles and descriptions for my talks. And uh, this time I chose this 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 one. And I have a cover of my talk, which is basically mimicking uh, O'Reilly's book, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Black and White Animal, and the rest, and. As a description of my talk, I have just a list of all HTML elements. <laughs> <laughs> I, ho- I hope your black and white animal was that attractive Russian bear, like that mug that we bought in the Moscow Metro that time. Uh, no, it was just a squirrel. <laughs> a squirrel? <laughs> yeah, just the, the, the funniest animal I could find in black and white. <laughs> This isn't a psychiatric podcast, so I'm not going to ask you why you think the squirrel is a funny animal, because I have a feeling that we'd be here A, all night, and B, I would learn more about you than I want to. Yeah, so to the next topic then. Indeed. It astonishes me, listeners, that we haven't actually discussed this next topic yet in uh, the three previous episodes of The F Word, because it's probably one of the most exciting areas of standardization that's happening right now, and that is called Houdini. Houdini started off with a bunch of people from the CSS Working Group and a bunch of people from the TAG, which is the Technical Architecture Group of the W3C. Its aim is not some not so much to invent new stuff as give web developers access to stuff that's been in browsers for years. So for example, to use something that everybody knows, service worker. Now, the browser has always been able to talk to the network. And the browser has always known if the network is down and has shown you some kind of uh, default can't connect right now page. But you as a developer never had access to that mechanism. And Service Worker gives you basically the the intermediate layer between the HTML of your page and the network. So you can say, hey, you seem to be offline. Would you like to do X? Would you like to do Y? Houdini's like Service Worker in that it, it sits between the CSS parsing box inside the browser and your web page through JavaScript. So if you wanted, for example, to invent a new mechanism to do layout, and for the sake of it, I'm going to say masonry layouts, even though that's coming really soon in CSS Grid. If you said display colon layout in your CSS, what you would have to do as a developer is basically re-implement CSS parser in your JavaScript to trap that. What Houdini gives you is the ability to hook into the CSS parser black box that's inside your browser that works brilliantly that has 20 years worth of the best C++ minds on the planet optimizing it and say, CSS, do your absolute normal thing, 
But if you see this hand control to me, I will do whatever it is I want to do and then seed control back to the built-in parser. So you get the, the best of all worlds. You get the hugely optimized, highly performant behavior of the browser, but the ability just to hook in it will probably make things a bit slower, but not that slow in case you would want to do this manually, like mm -hmm. the, the whole the whole thing. Like parse CSS yourself, find the, the, the things that you want, and then, then create it via Canvas or some other ways. Or, yeah, manipulate DOM on, and things like that. In this case, you're just sending instructions to browser what to draw and what to render, and it should be so much f faster. Uh, it's funny that you mentioned ma masonry layout that we discussed before, because I, I'm currently looking at the implementation of masonry layout using Houdini, which is uh, uh, just 40, 40 lines of JavaScript long, which is amazing. And of course, because uh, because it's just CSS, you can say display colon block and give whatever uh, fallback you want. And then you can say display colon paint brackets masonry and you get the cascade and you get the fallback. It, it's the best of all worlds. And you said, Vadim, yeah, well, it's going to slow things down. Basically, anything you do in JavaScript slows things down. Well, the fastest page is empty page, right? Exactly, exactly. But but this gives you the ability to hook into the native behavior of the browser and tweak it, which is just marvelous. There's only one downside that I can see. There's a brilliant post by Vincente Oliveira. He used to publish uh, some posts on CSS Houdini, and I think this time he combined everything together in a long post. Probably it's uh, based on some talk or something like this. So it's full of code samples, links, and everything. Like It's very dense and uh, full of a lot of interesting information. And uh, the funny thing I found at the, at the very end of this article, so if you read through and you'll find this thing as well. Actually, uh, something similar to uh, Houdini, Apple invented in uh, 12 years ago or something like this. On April 17th, uh, 2008, uh, there was a post published in WebKit blog called CSS Canvas Drawing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. They actually invented a property called WebKit Canvas or just Canvas with WebKit prefix. Basically, you would you would uh, specify ID of your Canvas elements uh, registered somewhere in your JavaScript and you would draw this anywhere you would put background image. So, yeah, invented by Apple as well. Well, at least paint uh, part of, of the Houdini spec. And the, the, the sad thing about this, that it's mostly Chrome thing or Chromium thing, because uh, uh, there's a website called Is Houdini Ready Yet? I think it's there. There's a there's a website uh, like this for every technology we have. Mm -hmm. So there's one for Houdini as well. And it's full of green boxes, but mostly for browsers based on Chromium. But in uh, Firefox and Safari cases, th there are some things going on. For example, properties and values API, uh, it's basically the way to register uh, your uh, custom CSS properties as real properties with uh, types. So you can say if it's color or a string or some number. So it will allow you to animate uh, those properties, for example. So this thing is in, in development. And some other things like layout API and paint API and typed object model for CSS, those are intent to implement uh, in server uh, engine. So uh, 
something's going on. And and even in Safari, they have paint API and typed uh, object model uh, in uh, development and some partial support of properties and values API in Safari technology preview. So something's going on. I'm going to jump in and say it's not only Chromium. I went to a Houdini meetup. It was attached to the CSS Working Group meetup in Paris in 2018, I think. And there were people from Microsoft, a lot of people from Google. There were people from Firefox. In fact, it was being hosted in the Firefox office in uh, the Mozilla office in Paris. And there were, there was Dean Jackson, who's like Lord of WebKit and Simon Fraser, who's very active and uh, influential in the WebKit community there. And they were not just observing, they were vigorously contributing. It was really good to see. I mean, uh, if you're just a regular developer or, if you're, or you're just interested in, in Houdini, you would know that because uh, it's implemented and available in Chrome cases and uh, other companies there there try to not to announce anything before it's shipped somewhere in nightly at least so yeah if you didn't know it's happening in other browsers too mm-hmm. so there is a there is a chance for almost every technology uh, under Houdini umbrella to be available for JavaScript for developers uh, via JavaScript I think a lot of it uh, a lot of the uh, not the objections that Apple had a lot of the, the the things they were anxious not to do was not to allow developers to shoot themselves in the foot. And I've been a coder myself. So when I say it's trivial to expose functionality that already exists, yeah, you'd have to write stuff. You have to give an API into it. But you also have to acknowledge that letting people get into an infinite loop with CSS, which is possible, is actually a shit idea because people will do it and they will blame the browser rather than the developer. So Apple are taking very good care that they can't allow developers to do catastrophically crap things. And given that what you and I saw about WebKit prefixes, Vadim, I'm quite happy that Apple are making sure that they won't let web developers do catastrophically shit things. Well, sometimes they, they're over, over-cautious, but I think they're just supporting their users. That's, that's, the, the, that's their reason. Yeah, and to sound like an entirely different person than I was at the top of the podcast, Apple has its own business imperatives, and they have a right to guard those and make sure that their particular users are protected in a way that Apple sees best. So, but uh, but I'm hopeful that we're going to see Houdini trickle across all the browsers. It's not going to be a big ta-da like CSS Grid was because it's not that nature of a technology, but we're going to see a great deal more ability to hook into CSS from JavaScript than we were before. And the only thing that worries me is that it's going to be another reason that developers can say, well, Everybody has JavaScript, so I'm going to do this stuff. Uh, and if you don't have JavaScript, tough shit. But, you know, ultimately it's CSS. So if your Houdini thing doesn't work, just use a fallback. It's it's classic CSS. So your next MacBook Pro is on its way, Bruce. <laughs> and hopefully my, my invitation to Hay as well.
Well, we have uh, covered some uh, browser APIs and uh, let's talk about the browser compatibility and how to file a browser bug because even for big companies like Apple, Google and Mozilla, it's very important for developers to file bugs and uh, report problems that they have because mm -hmm. web platform is as, as a huge number of technologies and variation and use cases. If you have something's wrong with your code in some browser, don't just blame it on browser or don't blame it on spec. You can do some steps to, to report it and then have it fixed sooner or later. It depends on how, how important this thing to the company or how good is your um, bug report, but it's possible. And we, we, should, we should probably promote this idea among developers more. And that's what Robert Neiman and Pete LePage uh, did in the web dev blog. They uh, wrote a, a really nice uh, instruction how to submit a browser bug. Basically, you verify that it's an actual bug. So you go to the spec and see if this behavior is intentional or you just haven't read the spec properly. And uh, you can you can try to to test in a different browsers because uh, sometimes when I find bug and I test it in some canary or nightly builds, it's just not there anymore because the chances that you found something unique are, well, they're not big. They probably know about it already. So you're making sure that it's an actual bug and you're testing it in uh, some nightly or beta. And when once this bug is reported, well, make sure that you have some code samples and you have some demos attached to it and uh, just follow and answer the questions and uh, try to, if it's uh, standing still and nothing's going on, try to nudge browser developers on Twitter. Um, sometimes it helps. I remember being nudged by Lieveru uh, to implement, what was it, like Conical Gradient or something like this. Yeah, we, we, we used to work in, in Opera Devrel team and uh, Lieveru used to uh, CC uh, every browser Devrel account uh, to, to ask them um, if they're going to implement this Conical Gradient uh, feature in CSS. And it was super annoying, but it made made some companies to to change their prior priorities. It's like uh, uh, this uh, Shawshank movie. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, it's exactly like the Shawshank Redemption. But it's true. I mean, people who make browsers are to some degree human beings. So yes, we can be annoyed as well. It's like. And then that's why Vadim said, you know, don't file the same bug again. I would say file the same bug again, because if I'm seeing 700 and squillion people filing the same bug, human nature is like, okay, this is obviously a problem. But if you're a kind person, just press star button on on bug in Chromium or subscribe to this bug or leave your use case in a comment if you if you found something similar make sure that your voice is registered somewhere mm -hmm. that you're subscribed to this and to this bug and that you're following it because sometimes it's important, but developers, they're too lazy to, to make a few steps to promote it and to let uh, browser developers know that they actually need it. So make sure that they know that's that would be the most important thing you can do. I'm going to agree with Vadim in um, a rather unusual show of uh, solidarity here. Having both been working for, for browser vendors, we actually 
do care about what developers think. We do listen to what developers want. And people who work for browsers are human beings. You know, if all of their friends are saying, man, I wish browsers did this, you're going to go to your boss and say, I wish browsers did this. If a thousand developers wish browsers did that, but haven't told me, I can't go to my boss and say, let's go for this. Yeah. And of course, if you notice something that doesn't seem to be working across browsers, our good chums at Mozilla and I mean our actual good chums, because ex-colleagues of Vadim and mine, Mr. Mike Chickenkiller Taylor and Mr. Carl Dubust, amongst others, have WebCompat, which is a website where you can go in, you can indicate something that's not working cross-browser, and the Mozilla team will investigate it and file all the bugs for you. Basically, it's uh, just an interface to file a GitHub issue. So uh, using this interface, you can you can file a bug and then follow it on GitHub. And uh, you can not just file a bug, but you can go uh, through all issues they have in re their repository and help them solve it. We used to do this uh, work for for a while in uh, in Opera days, mm -hmm. and there is a there's a big team in uh, Mozilla doing this the same thing for Firefox because, well, it's not number one browser market wise, but it's still good and it deserves all the quality we have for for Chromium. So, if you ha if you go through those bugs, you can actually support the Firefox in a way and support the web compatibility. So, uh, file a bug at least, or if you if you see something going on wrong or in Firefox or Chrome or or in Safari. It's not limited by Firefox issues, and uh, if you feel if you feel adventurous, just go through all issues and try to to solve them. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's it, it's a Mozilla initiative, but it's not only a place to file uh, Mozilla bugs. It's a place to file anything you found that breaks web compatibility. You know what we should do, Vadim? We should ask Mike Taylor to come on the show one time because he's comedy gold. Oh yeah, yeah. We should, we should. Uh, well, at least I, I missed him, so yeah, it would be a good chance to talk. Yeah, it was hang out with a mate and then throw in a difficult question about Flexbox. Sounds like a plan. That, dear listeners, brings us to the end of F Word Episode 4. There's been tears, there's been laughter, there's been joy, there's been misery, been web compatibility, there's been interminable discussion about legal issues. But we hope you enjoyed it. Please let us know. Some of you have been uh, telling us that you quite like it, which we like because ultimately Vadim and I are just old friends having a chat. So if you like listening, we're very grateful. Until next time, please don't touch your face, wash your hands and validate your code. Yep. Stay safe. See you in the fifth episode. Bye. Bye.